Our scripture reading today is from the New International Version. Our first reading is from Mark 15, 1 through 15. This is Jesus before Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they've accused you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now is the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you um, to you, the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Our second reading is from John 18, 33 to 38 in the New International Version. Pilate then went back into the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of of the Jews. Jesus asked, is this your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, asked Pilate. Jesus answered, You say I am a king? In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him.
My job is convictions, to judge wrongdoing, to keep the Roman law and order. A society cannot function if the law is not kept, or at least if lawbreaking goes unpunished. But religious law? That is not my job. I don't know how one would even begin to convict a Jew of breaking a religious law. I leave that work to the priests. So when the Hebrew priests presented me with the man named Jesus and asked me to convict him of illegal activity, I was confused and more than a little annoyed. I don't deal in religious law-breaking. But they were so worked up about the whole thing, insistent. I asked them, what laws has he broken? They couldn't answer. (laughs) Or rather, they all tried to answer at once. But then they didn't really answer, not clearly. Oh, something about, well, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. He claims to be a king. So I thought, fine, I'll question the man. Maybe that'll calm everyone down, get him out of my face. And who knows? Maybe he has broken a Roman law. We'll see. So I asked him, what have you done? Why have your priests brought you here to be judged? Do you claim to be king of the Jews? His answer surprised me. He admitted it. Now, if he was serious, could have been a real problem. Authority belongs to Caesar. The Jews don't, they can't have kings. But I knew he wasn't serious, and anyway, the Jewish leaders didn't seem to see him as a king. The the whole thing was so confusing and irritating. I didn't even care to get to the truth. I just wanted to wrap it all up. As it turns out, this time of year is some big festival for the Jews, passing. Past tense? Passover? Something like that. I usually give them a break. I release some Jewish prisoner. You know, try to make some peace between them and Rome. This year, this Jesus, seemed the obvious pick. I mean, he hadn't done anything. So, I went out to the crowd that had gathered there and I asked them, would you like me to release this Jesus? I was stunned by the answer. The whole crowd shouted, no! And then they started chanting for me to release a guy named Barabbas, a convicted murderer. A murderer! you got to be kidding me, I thought. What harm has Jesus done? But by now, the crowd was almost out of control. And I was over it.
I thought, what do I care who I release? If they want Jesus convicted of some bogus crime and Barabbas let go, that is not my problem. And I literally washed my hands of the whole thing right there in front of the crowd. Called my servant to bring out a bowl of water. I freed Barabbas. Ordered Jesus to be flogged. Then I washed... I washed my hands. Like I said, my job is convictions, not sorting out religious issues. Following his religious trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Jesus is bound and sent to stand before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the province of Judea, who served under Emperor Tiberius from the year 26 to 36 AD. Jesus is transferred across the city to the north side of the Temple Mount, near the eastern gate of the city that is in proximity to the Mount of Olives. The group of chief priests who arrested Jesus accompany him there and remain as somewhat of a prosecuting team during the trial with Pilate. They also do a fair bit of riling up the swelling ranks of onlookers in the crowd. Pontius Pilate is the local representative of Roman authority, the global empire, that Rome, that conquered the Mediterranean world. And his job is to keep the peace, to keep order, which ultimately means to keep Rome ruling. This is Jesus standing before the power of the world. It's also an important part in the story because Jesus, who ended up dying on the cross, only died in that manner because he was sentenced to death by Rome. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment for Rome. Pilate's presence in the biblical narrative is rich and intense. It is entirely impossible to do full justice to Pilate in one Sunday and in one sermon. Just like last, the last two weeks, we realized that the trial before Caiaphas was happening at the same time as Peter's denial, and so that story needed two weeks to tell The story of Jesus appearing before Pilate is not complete without telling the story of the Roman soldiers who carry out the sentence that Pilate gives, and that is next week in our series. But what do we notice about the trial, Jesus' trial before Pilate, before Rome? 
One of the things that is fairly clear right off is that there's a lot of dialogue here. And it seems fairly authentic. Pilate seems to be truly engaging with Jesus. Why is that? Is it simple curiosity? Is it Pilate's well-honed technique of leading the witness to self-incrimination? Is he showing respect for Jesus, acknowledging him as a person of consequence? In the words of, of common slang uh, basketball terminology, realizing there is March Madness going around, is Pilate's respect for Jesus, is that game respecting game? Or is Pilate demonstrating genuine objectivity, seeking the truth about this man brought before him under suspicious circumstances, arms bound and face bloodied? And perhaps another possibility is one that has been seized upon by some of the more ancient churches in the world, the Ethiopian and Coptic churches that believe that because of Pilate's reluctance to pass judgment on Jesus, they believe that this is the beginning of him coming to faith in Jesus. And in their tradition, Pilate eventually did and became a martyr for the cause. But as we see Pilate potentially seeking after the truth as a judge in this respect, in this dialogue with Jesus, we see three things, potentially. We see his objectivity, but we also see his expediency in pleasing the crowd. All the while, we see Jesus revealing his identity. First, let's look at objectivity. Pilate does demonstrate a degree of objectivity, doesn't he? Especially in comparison to Jesus' first trial. He refrains to do, just in, in a way, be ordered around by the prosecutorial team. In Mark chapter 15, we see this in at least three ways. First is advocacy, next is awareness, and the next is assertiveness. Advocacy. Pilate almost seems to be an advocate for Jesus in the trial. Looking out for Jesus, who is without representation, making sure that he's able to mount a defense. In verse 3 of chapter 15, the chief priests accused Jesus of many things. So again, Pilate asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? It's like Pilate is, is an advocate for Jesus saying, are you aware of the seriousness of this? Do you understand the position that you're in? And next is awareness. Pilate seems to be on to the scheming and the less than objective motivations of the chief priests. In verse 9, Pilate asks, Do you want me to re release to you the king of the Jews? And he says this, the text says, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. By that point, Pilate was aware of the plot and probably that it didn't hold too much water. And finally is assertiveness. Pilate verbally asserts or affirms Jesus' innocence. 
What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked the crowd. Crucify him. And Pilate says, why? Tell me, what crime has he committed? And in John, Pilate's words are rendered as, I find no basis to the charge against him. While Pilate has objectivity, Pilate who famously asks Jesus, what is truth? Reveals that he has a range of understanding of what truth is. Truth has a range of meaning for Pilate. And it's one that considers matters of expediency as well as objectivity. In John 18, 38, when, when Jesus claimed to be on the side of the truth and, and said, those who are on the side of the truth listen to me, Pilate says, what is truth? Is Pilate just being cynical? Well, we find out that for Pilate, seeking the truth involves expediency as well as objectivity. Expediency. Expediency involves considering one's own advantage or interest as opposed to what is right. It's what benefits me or those whom I represent. So here, it could be Pilate's personal welfare, but it could also be the interest of Rome. And expediency in justice invariably involves the crowd, the court of public opinion. Is truth objective? Is something true when it's not popular? That is a question for the human community in all eras. Or does truth depend? Is it socially defined? Does something become true or more true as the volume level of public opinion rises. This is obviously a huge issue for the justice system in any society, and particularly poignant for Americans during confirmation hearings for a Supreme Court nominee. And without getting into any commentary on that process, that well-traveled process through the, the couple centuries of, of our experience in America, it is a strange alchemy, isn't it? in the two-party democratic system that, that the conversation about objectivity of the Supreme Court happens in a swirl of subjectivity that's built in. One particular political party, in a sense, nominates a candidate, and then the other political party is asking questions from their perspective, right? These perspectives, and yet the whole time, if we take away the layers of all of it, we get down to the basic question, which is, will this justice be able to judge with objectivity? It's not just judges, though, who are challenged to remain objective. There's also, in our society, the jury. Courtroom dramas portray this dilemma often. And perhaps... uh, never so popularly as in the 1957 classic movie, 12 Angry Men, 
that was nominated for Best Picture in the Academy Awards that year. Starring Henry Fonda, it tells the story of a jury in a homicide case that at the beginning is nearly unanimous in assuming that the defendant is guilty, but whose decision is changed when one person takes a stand, an objective stand for truth in spite of the peer pressure. Now, this is based on one of the classic treatments of standing alone in the face of public opinion in the late 19th century stage play titled An Enemy of the People by Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen. The protagonist, Dr. Thomas Stockman, becomes aware that the spa that the town is investing its economic hopes in has bacteria-contaminated water that will likely kill many people. But then he discovers the economic pressure that the entire town exerts on him to reconsider what he knows to be true. And at one point, he says, considerations of expediency turn morality and justice upside down. For Pontius Pilate, the pressure of public opinion rises with the volume of the volume level of the crowd chanting, crucify him. And so Pilate opens an ear to expediency. We read in Mark 15, 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate releases Barabbas to them, and he has Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Pilate makes The Barabbas bargain for the sake of expediency. For all the talk of integrity, it turns out it was all about what is best for Pilate and his interests all along. On the one hand, a a person deserving of prison is freed. And on the other hand, in this exchange, an innocent man is sentenced to death. But if we, if we read perhaps slower, and especially if we, if we remember that text, we added the text from the Gospel of, Mark, uh, Gospel of John into the reading of the Gospel of Mark today, to listen in on more of the deeper conversation between Pilate and Jesus, we recognize that all along in this trial, as Pilate is weighing objectivity and expediency, Jesus is revealing his identity. And his identity on the stand before a watching world. Who does Jesus say he is? Pilate questions Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus basically responds, what do you think? Is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? It's smart. He knows there's talk. Pilate wants to find out from Jesus what is it he has done, and Jesus takes that opportunity, in a sense, to turn the tables and to speak of who he is and what his mission is Jesus continues, by the way, to answer Pilate's original question. It's not about what he has done. 
It's about who he is. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. And then Pilate says, you admit it then. You say that you are a king. And Jesus takes that opportunity to say what it means. What is the meaning behind that? And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The Gospel of John features the word truth in Greek, aletheia, 23 times, far and away the most of any biblical book. In the telling of the story of Jesus, Jesus has been introduced as being full of grace and truth. Jesus proclaims that in him you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. At his trial with Pilate, at the conclusion of which he is sent to die on a Roman cross, the truth is revealed. The truth is, Jesus is a king. It is a kingdom that transcends the limits of this world and its powers and its opinions. His kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to him. How should we respond? Listen. Amen.